0: Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, welcome to the show. Today we are going to talk about a lot of different issues, local issues. We we somehow were able to and scheduling and everything else, but uh, he's a busy man. Uh, Daniel Weiner, executive director of a CHBA Central Okanagan CHBA. Um and it's the home builders and and uh, he has if anybody has followed him on on LinkedIn it's a lot of fun it's a roller coaster ride. <laughs> um, what I love, uh, Daniel, and please welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be sitting across the table from you, Rick. Absolute <laughs> podcast legend. You stop, uh,
0: but keep going. No, uh, what I would like to find out is is you you came into this role and uh, and and. Part of me wants to find out what led you to this because, I mean, obviously you have a diversified background. Uh, did you ever see yourself in this role?
1: I definitely never saw myself in this role. I have, I'm i a marketer by trade. I'm a storyteller by trade, and that's what I like to do is use the uh, data-driven side of my brain to inform the creative storytelling side of my brain, and marketing's done a great job of that but it's allowed me to shift from legal to finance to cannabis to the world of housing. So it's it, it's been quite the career so far in a number of interesting fields, but this housing one has become something that's very near and dear to my heart for a myriad of reasons. And uh, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. It's a It's a big problem we have to solve.
0: So I really love the fact that, and, and uh, my, my quip off the top about the LinkedIn, I so appreciate the fact that you let your voice be heard because you're speaking on behalf of a number of builders. And, I mean, let's face it, we have uh, a really big need in Kelowna. Rents are going through the roof. Obviously, we need a supply. Um, we have a labor shortage to deal with. So BC budget came came down a few weeks ago. What what are your thoughts from your perspective from your chair?
1: From from my chair, and whether it's whether it's the BC budget, whether it's the housing accelerator fund from the federal level that it was announced last week, uh, the devil's in the details, and there aren't enough details to have a super strong opinion yet. So. Rollout and implementation are the things that matter most. And when we look at the provincial government, we look at what can you do with the short amount of time that you have. Premier Eby has office for another year, year and a bit. Maybe, so yeah. so he's gotta roll these things out fast and people are gonna to need to see progress if they're going to vote for him and vote for his party. Um, so a lot of great promises, a lot of great focus on housing. And we, we've seen, you know, talking the talk. Now it's rollout implementation and seeing what it actually looks like in practice so that, you know, they're not misused and misappropriated funds.
0: So when I was looking through the details, and again, from your LinkedIn profile, thank you for that, uh, you talked a lot about the money that that's earmarked for to deal with the housing shortage. And so you just don't see an actionable plan? Is that what we're getting through in the devils in the details part of this?
1: Yeah. So as we continue to talk through housing, I'll I'll use sports analogies because I think I know sports better than I know my job. Uh, But I think, you know, it's like saying, oh, we've signed a record breaking $85 million contract for the quarterback, but then how much of it is guaranteed and how much of it is bonus money? So it's great to say we're going to put these billions of dollars in Project A and hundreds of millions in Project B, but until we actually see... Are those going to staff up B.C. housing or are those funds going to directly roll out to municipalities? Uh, Where does the money go and how does it support is the most important question. We know we need to see more money going into our municipalities. Kelowna is a leader across B.C. It's well known. uh, And yet still, we can't meet the challenges of our growing community, despite the fact that we've taken a leadership position on how we can get more houses, whether they're rental, whether they're to own. uh, We get more, more built because of the processes we've invested in. So I'm curious to see where that money will go and how it will funnel down to our municipalities. Is this a,
0: are they a big influence? Or are they a big resource, I guess, for creating this, this housing? Is that, like, is the government, provincial government such a big deal when it comes to this?
1: The government, <laughs> the provincial government's a big deal, whether it should be a big deal or not, I think is the bigger discussion. Because on one side, If the government is building housing, then they are competing with the private market. And if the government is overspending on land, that land becomes more valuable all around the rest of the community. Now the developers have to pay those prices for land and everything continues to go up and up and up because you're looking at public enterprise buying private land. So so that's a problem to start. From there, you see the things that EB are saying and they're things that we're personally excited about with the Canadian Home Builders Association, wherein... We want to see more nonprofit partnerships. We want to see a return to co-op housing that we've seen in the 70s and 80s. There are creative methods of building more homes that don't necessarily have to require the government directly getting involved, but more so opening up the floodgates, funneling the money to the right parties to monitor and implement programs. That's more the route that we would like to see everything go. The running joke is if you want to see affordable housing built expensively, build a BC housing project. So, and it's because of the bureaucracy, the red tape, the bidding process, it's it's ridiculous. So I think there's ways we can build more houses quicker and cheaper. I'm optimistic overall, but devil's in the details. So
0: is there a, a listening board or is there an ear that you have at the provincial government? Because I mean, the association that that you have is, is rather large in the province. does it have a voice in in the provincial government in other words do you have a conduit into the government where you can offer suggestions and ideas?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I would say, I would give a lot of credit to our provincial counterparts. So the Canadian Home Builders Association is one of the largest advocacy bodies for housing in the country, period. And in BC, we have nearly 3,000 members at this point in time. So we've built, over the the time of the NDP reign, we've built some really good relationships with various ministers that are in power. Ravi Collin is one that we work with regularly at this point in time, but Minister Robin and in the past as well as one that we've collaborated with. Uh, But in addition to that, we make sure that we keep our relationships uh, strong and open and honest with the opposition because we have such a strong oppositional force here in the central Okanagan. So we're a nonpartisan entity, and that requires us focusing on facts and logic rather than opinions and grandstanding. Um, And that, I think, being able to present things in a data-driven way is what has allowed us to foster strong relationships across both sides of the aisle. So
0: you get fired up about this uh, this stuff. like and, and, and I love it because I mean you've, you've come into the role. How long have you been in this, this role?
1: Uh, about three and a half years.
0: And along the way, I mean I saw you uh, at the mayor's forum and asking some really strong questions because those are questions that need to be answered on the municipal level. But before we get into the municipal, um, going back to the province is is if you were to talk about a report card, for the uh, David E. B., where would you rate him right about now? Like right about now, as it stands in in March,
1: with my CHBA hat on, I would probably give him a C plus to a B minus. I think I hold out optimism that there is more that he can do and more that can be done. But if you're looking at the data empirically housing costs are still going up, uh, rent is still going up, People are more people are on the streets. So we're not solving the problems with the methods we've taken thus far, and thus bolder action needs to be taken. Whether we can take that action under NDP leadership is what we need to see next.
0: Uh, I can't remember the, the date, so don't hold me to this, but at some point uh, David Eby talked about um, the slow municipal approval process and how he was going to wade in and try and help facilitate that and accelerate that. Um, What were your thoughts on that? Because obviously that is right in the sweet spot for CHBA.
1: Yeah, so context matters as far as how we feel about that. Personally, I'm reasonably confident that that type of oversight isn't necessarily needed in a community like Kelowna, where they've done things like digitize the permitting process, update the OCP, update their housing needs assessment. A new one comes out in a couple of months. But there are laggards within our local constituency that we serve across the central Okanagan that, for for my purposes, I won't name here. Uh, But there are some where permitting delays are as long as four years right now. It's it's absolutely crazy. So if you were to try to get a shovel in the ground in some of our communities, you're waiting till 2026. And that's unacceptable when we're dealing with the crisis that we're dealing with. And it's a shame that the elected leadership of those constituencies aren't addressing the problem with a more bold and aggressive stance. You have so much diplomacy right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get me
0: drinking; it'll be a totally different conversation. So, what uh, what communities do you serve? Not that we're going to name names, but I'm just asking what communities you you represent.
1: For sure. So, the CHBA Central Okanagan serves from Peachland all the way up to Revelstoke. So, we're the entire Central Okanagan, as well as the the northern boundary there. And sometimes we fight over Salmon Arm with one of our sister nonprofits as well. Uh, but yeah, so we we cover quite a wide swath of land that has. Very different regional problems across the board. Um,
0: so membership, how how many uh, people are signed up for for membership?
1: We are just we just crossed 330 members now. Um, this is you know the toot my own horn moment. So when I came in, we were the 12th largest HBA in Canada. At this point in time, we are the sixth largest, and our goal is to become the fourth largest, which would put us behind Toronto, Vancouver, and Edmonton if we are to succeed.
0: So, in in keeping in the uh, the narrative of tooting your horn, why is that? Why are why are more builders signing on to uh, to be part of this? Because obviously, other than your charisma, but but what else is it? Why why else are they wanting to become part of the voice?
1: Yeah, I, I actually. So I think this isn't about tooting my own horn at all. I don't. I think. A lot of it is luck. I think I'm here at the CHBA Central Okanagan is in the right place at the right time. And we are seeing you see exponential growth when you look at census data. You see, oh, we've passed Saskatoon as far as populations are concerned. And there's a lot of builders coming into the Okanagan to get in on that. And when when those builders continue to join because they've seen value in their home constituencies, whether they're in the Lower Mainland or in Alberta, then the suppliers start to come too. So you get more kitchen and bath companies, you get more cabinet companies, you get insurance providers. Everything is a flywheel around those builders, renovators and designers. So So on one hand, I think a lot of it is right place, right time. On the other hand, we have focused on, my mantra is, I want our members to be more economically competitive than their non-member peers. If they get value out of the membership, they should be able to pummel their fellow non-member renovators and builders <laughs> into the ground. That's what I want. So we focus on education that makes gets them access to grants and to funding. We focus on uh, what's coming down the pipeline on the BC building code. We focus on marketing best practices. We put together so many networking events. Uh, so I think that programming investment has really paid off, but a lot of it is right place, right time.
0: Well, uh, good on you, though, because, I mean, a, a larger membership base obviously gives you, like I said, a, a larger voice, larger pr- platform, which is also necessary. Um, let's talk about the current issues that face builders and the contractors and, and, you know, across the board. Obviously, number one would probably be labor shortage. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a bit about that. What, what kinds of things are you hoping to advocate for to help remedy that situation?
1: The labor shortage is multifaceted because we can't, everyone will tell you, oh, there's not enough people that wanna work, but then you look at the unemployment rate and it is at a historic low. So people not wanting to work is not the problem. We just don't have enough workers. So we need to get more workers in, but you can't get more workers in if they can't afford to work here. So, because they can't pay the rent. So we're in this catch 22 where it's, I remember coming out of university and you need the experience to get the job but you need the job to get the experience and you've gotta wait for someone to take that first step. Where does all this play out as far as the trades are concerned in specific? I think the trades have gotten a terrible rap over the last 20 years. You think of, when you think of trades, you think of the plumber with the pants halfway down, and you don't necessarily think of the entrepreneur that has built their own enterprise from the ground up that now has not only economic freedom, but time freedom. We focus so much on STEM jobs uh, for those that don't know science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, but... We haven't put an increased value on the people that are going to build our homes, that are going to fix them when something goes wrong. And then in addition to that, you add new code standards that are making homes more energy efficient. So now we need more people with knowledge of solar. We need more energy advisors. We need electricians updating their knowledge and their information. We need uh, new window suppliers creating new product. So all of these needs are continuing to grow. You add this retiring population. You add this negative stigma around the trades, and the problem just continues to exacerbate. So for us, what we, where, does, where do we? How do we fix it? What do we do? Uh, we need to educate parents. I think parents are the biggest problem. I think mm. parents need to be aware of the the freedom one can have. If they start an apprenticeship at 18, they get their red seal by 22. Maybe at 25, they go to business school. By 28, they're an entrepreneur. And by 32, they are running a business with multiple people and training the next generation. That conversation isn't being had with counselors and parents enough. And as soon as we do that and do a better job of, it's not just about being a carpenter or a plumber, but it's about running your own business and doing what you want with your time then that's going to change. So we've seen some investment in advertising from the B.C. government, uh, but those conversations need to happen at the school level and with parents to change the perspective of what it means to be a blue-collar worker.
0: Well, I would imagine, uh, because I I taught at uh, Okanagan School of Business last year, is there been conversations, many, with uh, Dr. Neil Ficina and, and uh, you know, the leadership over at
1: the college? So it's funny that you asked that question, and this is unplanned for anybody listening. Uh, literally, I'm going to meet him in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, yeah, we're going to sit down because that the announcement about the, the new tourism and culinary building, Mass Timber, is absolutely huge. And we need those workers. This isn't a competition of who do you love more, mom or dad, but we need the same thing for the trades. We need more, an aggressive amount of trades people. We, and that conversation starts with people as smart and intelligent as Dr. Neil Fasina.
0: So they have a new uh, uh, housing development at uh, the college, which will also help alleviate because you touched on it, and, and of course, people know this, that I've had uh, Doug Gilchrist from the city come on and say, we've hired people. They've showed up here. They've done a a quick run around for checking out rental or buying a home. They said they just can't do it. So they decided to leave the position. And he says that's happened more often than not. We get a good qualified candidate. We can't land them because they, they have nowhere to live. So I would imagine the student housing development would, would help that, that scenario, which is getting more people here getting them trained up, living on site, and then obviously that helps for our trades.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, every type of housing is great at this point in time. I'll take anything. So the student housing is a fantastic start and a great example project. But I think when you look at the OCP of the city, um, and you talk about 15-minute cities and walkable communities, and everyone's going to ride their bike, and whether we get there is not my expertise. But what I can ask is when you look at the like Kelowna General Hospital, and the parkade that's going in, why do we build a parkade when we could build a four story condo? And then we don't need the cars because they can walk across the street to their job. I think we, we can get more creative problem solving if uh, builders, people like uh, our members, but especially the association are at the table and saying, how can we solve this problem collectively? And we've we've worked with everyone from, from Journey Home and Conversations with the Clona Gospel Mission all the way up to mixed use multi-story buildings. Uh, so when we're at the table, we're able to provide some insight as to what might be possible, but it requires creative thinking and an all hands on deck mentality from every industry.
0: It really does. And, and thinking of that, I'm just uh, I, I love stream of consciousness uh, questions. I'm thinking about the Tolko land that uh, you know everyone is excited about. I've had Ryan Smith on the program Doug Gilchrist. They're talking about this is really a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Is is your association somewhat? Uh, is that in your purview? Is that something that you're talking about around the table as far as what could happen, what what should happen, what maybe could happen?
1: It's something that we're we're involved in, but in a more passive, consultative way. Um, I mean, housing is you know if i'm if i see a, a nail every everything's a hammer that's kind of my mentality on things at the same time where the site is you do ask about floodwaters water level rising and what that could mean from a climate change perspective so and i'm not the educated guy on floodwater treatment so i we're on the outskirts of the conversation, but I think that's a better conversation to be had with uh, potential landowners, potential developers, and, and keeping us focused on getting the homes built and not the uh, application of land usage.
0: Okay, so let's talk uh, municipal because uh, I love this part of the conversation. We have, um, I would say, a, a, new, a new mayor, a new council, and possibly some new perspectives around the table. So has that been so far so good? I mean, they've, they've had some council meetings. I'm sure you've been to a few of them. What is your sense of the current council and, and mayor?
1: We met with now Mayor Dias prior to the election and talked about some of the concerns that we have and the issues we wanted to raise. And when you looked at his website during the municipal election, a lot of the suggestions from the Canadian home builders were listed on his platform. Um, That platform is now off the website. I'm not sure why that is, but that's another issue. I think when you look at the 22 priorities that the City of Kelowna just released, um, homelessness and crime are, are the two interlinked issues that we need to discuss. And it is being addressed through a social lens more so than an entrepreneurial capitalistic lens, which it probably needs to be right now because the problem is pretty bad as far as that is concerned. Um, so I think what we have with council are people who are willing to listen, are willing to engage. Um, they're not afraid of standing up for their own beliefs and their own perspectives, even if we disagree. But I, I would give credit to every councillor that we've engaged with that the, the communication line is open. Um, there are there are many issues that still need to be resolved if you want to get into it, um, and a lot of opportunities as well. So we we have strong relationships, but it's it's too early to tell what this is going to mean from a, a housing perspective. I think.
0: Okay, so let's uh, let's open up this can of worms a little bit. Um, I have a home in Lower Mission. I would love to somehow have a rental place, a carriage home, or addition, or something like that, and and. But the fees have increased substantially since, I think it was the fall, when they first went up. And now it's a little bit more of a catch-22. Like, I mean, I'd love the rental income, but on the other side, when do you get return on investment for such a thing as the carriage home? Um, and obviously, this falls right into your sweet spot. Is this something that, uh, you know, do you do you lobby? Do you, like, how how does that... How do you work at that? Because the one policy is densification. Let's get more inventory. On the other side, we're going to increase, you know, these DCCs and and really fundamentally make it more challenging to build these homes. So where do you stand stand with that that whole discussion?
1: For sure. So I'm going to zoom that conversation out to 30,000 feet for a quick moment. If I get lost on a tangent, just reel me back in. Can do. So if. So the cost of, so development cost charges, for those that don't know, are costs paid by developers and builders to help invest in the infrastructure of the community. Because we need clean drinking water, we need streets, we need sidewalks, we need parks. These things are important to a community. They make a community like Kelowna desirable to live in. Saying you don't like parks and sidewalks is like saying you don't like kittens. It makes no sense. So, I'm a dog guy, but. (laughs) So, the, the problem lies in that there's this mentality from council and city staff, that new growth needs to pay for new growth, when in reality, these fees are so high now, to the tune of, I think, over $40,000 per door, that it was because of misuse of funds and not raising funds through the early 2000s and the late 90s, is my understanding, that we are now playing catch up. So we've okay. had parks that were underfunded, we've had programs and, and upgrades that needed to be done that weren't done because we've we pass the buck, so to speak. So now we're in, we, we have a mayor and leadership that are saying, okay, we need to play catch up. And we understand that the other side of that problem is when you build a new park in a community, it's not just the new homeowner that should be paying for that. The old homeowner is getting the benefit of the new park. The old homeowner is getting the benefit of better water, better sidewalks, better streetlights, et cetera. So the ripple effect is when you charge $40,000 per door, and let's say the home is 500,000, now it's 540, the builder has charged interest and carrying costs, so that 40 becomes 50, and now the house is $550,000 when it could have been $500,000 if there was zero costs. And again, no one's saying that that's what we're advocating for. So why does all of that matter? Well, because the neighbor down the street with the 1970s home sees the $550,000 home and their home was worth three hundred, dollars and they go, well, now I can get 350 dollars now I can get 375. So it becomes this self-perpetuating feedback loop where all of the old homes get more expensive because the new homes are so much more expensive because of the development cost charges. So we need to find a way to balance development cost charges with property taxes. And the real problem is that no elected official is going to come out and say, we need to raise property taxes. I don't know if you do a fact check or anything like that, but if you look Kelowna pays the third lowest property tax rate in BC and BC pays the lowest property tax rate of any province in Canada. Look at Mississauga, Burlington, Brantford, Hamilton, Calgary, Edmonton, Regina, Winnipeg. All of them have higher property tax rates than us and you can look out the window and you can see what we get for our property taxes. It's insane. If we right-sized our property taxes to match what those communities are doing, we could drop those DCCs quite considerably and still pay for all of our infrastructure needs because you're spreading the cost out over 50,000 homes, not the 1,000 new homes a year that are getting created. So we can get into the nuts and bolts, too, of like the actual DCCs themselves, but that explainer is super important for understanding the problem that we have and why we actually need to raise property taxes more than anything else.
0: So it's more about just... I guess uh, taking that burden and spreading it out over the whole population versus just a few that are trying to build.
1: Yeah, well, and going back to your comment about Mr. Gilchrist, it's (laughs) ironic, right? Because if that person is coming to live in Central Green or in Movala in a couple of years, those costs are going to be passed to that future city planner. Whereas now they have no place to live. And now, like, the irony seems to be lost on that we've created a negative feedback loop that is totally within our power to correct, but it requires leadership from council more than it does from city staff.
0: And that's a big leap because, you, you know, and I'm just thinking as a politician right now, so uh, bear with me here. So I'm going, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to, I have these new people moving into the community, Ostensibly. So I'm going to, you know, I'll I'll get less angry emails from those people versus the electorate, which elected me into office who are like, you're going to do what with my property taxes? I mean, that is a big shift.
1: Totally, Yeah, it's, it's big and scary and the communication has to be very good to be able to do it in an appropriate manner. But at the same time, I think the bigger question is, what do we have to lose by not doing it? And you're seeing it. You see, when somebody from the tech sector moves from Toronto to the Okanagan and they buy the Rutland home, family that was renting that Rutland home for years at $1,200 gets kicked out mm-hmm. and now they can't afford somewhere to go. So where do they end up? They end up on the lower side of the housing spectrum if they end up in the housing spectrum and not on the street. So it, as long as we continue to allow those with means, those STEM jobs that we invested in from the beginning of the conversation to have access to the housing. And as long as our housing isn't catching up with the actual need of the community, then this problem is only going to continue to exacerbate itself And we need to raise more money. And if you raise it on the developers, then those costs are going to cause every other house in the community to go up regardless. So whether it goes up through perceived value and profit to the individual homeowner or through property taxes so that the community can actually get something out of it, that's the debate. Where where should those profits and where should that benefit go to? And people will disagree with me on that. I'm a homeowner as well. I own a half duplex, uh, but I can't afford to own a single family home. And I've lived here for eight years. That's crazy. It, it's very upsetting. So for me, the issue is personal and social.
0: <laughs> okay, this is so much fun. Um, so going forward, is that is that the horizon? Then is to to bring that forward. And how do you even bring such an audacious idea? And I'm sorry, it is audacious. Forward to city and 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 make it you know somehow get on
1: the docket. So that's me on my soapbox understanding that I'm never going to get a counselor to jump on that conversation. I would love for that to happen. Maybe I'll have to run myself and say, I'm going to raise taxes and see what happens. (laughs) But I think what we have to do is start small. So now we go back into the DCC's conversation that you originally asked me about. What does Rick do with his plot of land? So if you were to knock down your home and you wanted to create investment opportunity for yourself, let's say you wanted to build a fourplex on that lot because now you're increasing density, you're meeting the goals of the city. All of this is good. Check, 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 check. So if you were to build your choices, do I build a fourplex or do I build a gigantic home and put a suite in the basement and turn it into an Airbnb? So if I put four townhomes on that lot, you are going to pay $160,000 in DCCs to the municipal government, $40,000-ish per home, probably a little bit more because they charge per door. If you build one mega home on that lot, you will pay $40,000. So we've created a DCC program that actually disincentivizes the density we are seeking to achieve, or leaves it to those with the deepest pockets who want to pay $700,000 for a townhome, as if we were in Vancouver. So, it and it, it scales. It's it's kind of frustrating in that the you know the diplomacy is now being lost. We're getting into the weeds of this conversation, but. If you wanted to build a 5,000-foot winery, you are paying the same amount in development cost charges as the person who wants to build a single-family home. And if you want to build a duplex, you're paying more than the person who built the winery. That seems unfair. It's, It's upsetting in a lot of ways. What would be a better model, and what we've seen in other communities, is to charge those DCCs by the square foot because if you charge them by the square foot, you actually build for what you need and you don't necessarily get greedy. So it requires math, it requires a little bit of hard work and heavy lifting on the municipality staff side, but it is more fair and equitable and is more likely to get us to the density targets that we are hoping to get to. That's where we start, instead of going to Dan's Audacious Property Tax Plan. (laughs)
0: Well, it is counterintuitive though when you explain it like that, where you want densification, you want more doors in a city, yet if you actually choose to do that, so I rip down my house, I want to build four doors, and then all of a sudden I'm paying really an atrocious amount of DCCs because I am trying to build that rental income, but I'm also trying to house like potentially four families. Now all of a sudden that that math doesn't work for me, and I'm going okay. Well, then I guess you know we'll we'll scratch that plan and try something else and that conversation has probably happened across the city daily a number of times just because people are going i'm looking at the numbers they don't seem to work or that roi is is way too far away for me to even even look at doing that so so that would be a, a fundamental um interesting s- subject for a lot of silent what i would call the silent electorate who are going yeah that That doesn't make any sense with policy like that's kind of what you're saying
1: yeah totally and that's why i use the linkedin platform i i don't love being a huge me 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 person but i understand the voice that i have in the platform that i have to make those issues more publicly aware more accessible because you're not going to see that if you're the average joe working in the service industry or in the winery industry or in the tech industry these things don't impact you So I try to use my platform to educate as best as I can to other leaders and other business owners and workers that are in there so that they can take this message and run with it as well, because we just need more awareness around the issue.
0: So what I really do appreciate, and I've I've said this to you, is that the fact that you do use your voice, you do use your platform. And I think a lot of executive directors, um, and again, we won't name names, but they fail to you know rally the troops like there's different times when I think association should speak out and say this is going on this is hurting my membership I need either government and that could be municipal provincial federal to stop doing this because it is hurting us and I so appreciate the fact that you you actually spend some time going hey this is hurting us or can we look at this differently and I think it was that part of your plan going into this was did you think you would be this vocal?
1: I I didn't think I would be this vocal in the way that I am. I knew I would be vocal because I'm really grateful for the board of directors that hired me. The board of directors had said from the beginning, the executive director is meant to be the face of the association, not the board. So the executive director needs to be the mouthpiece. They need to be on the soapbox. They need to be pounding the rock with the messaging and getting everything out there to the community. What I didn't expect, I expected it to go through the CHBA and kind of take that more uh, delicate, nonpartisan, soft approach. But by using my voice personally and making the issues that our memberships face relatable to the average human being in their day-to-day life, I think it's going to have far more of an impact than trying to um, you know, be as diplomatic as I was in the first 15 minutes of the conversation. <laughs>
0: But, but fundamentally, there's just some policy that doesn't make any sense. So if, you know, it, it's like when uh, I I hear that, okay, we want to raise up the most vulnerable, but then we're going to raise the minimum wage, not knowing that that has a counter effect to what your policy might be, which is, and, you know, I might be speaking about the NDP, who knows. But, but part of it is when policy doesn't follow the action and, and when some of these things end up actually, you know, I would say in conflict with each other that's when I find you know people like yourself should be speaking out and saying this doesn't make any sense can we at least look at this again so it does make sense.
1: For sure. So, and a great, like, so we talked about the, the provincial budget when I talked quickly about the Housing Accelerator Fund as well. So, David Eby gave $1 billion to communities as a one time fund to invest in infrastructure and growth um, to help support the community. And, is receiving $26 million from that fund. From the federal government, they've released $4 billion to help build a hundred thousand homes across Canada. And if I know Ryan and Doug and they're smart guys, I really, I love, appreciate and respect everything that they do. They will get as much of those funds for our community as they possibly can. But when you hear all of that money is meant to go towards infrastructure, we logically get back to the DCC conversation. So if those DCCs are funding infrastructure, maybe some of those funds could be used to give developers a break so that we could actually build more houses cheaper. It would be frustrating and upsetting if we see the municipal government go the route of acquiring land for BC housing projects. If it's used to find creative solutions to build homes at an affordable way, That is probably the best option, but that's going to take years and years of time from agreeing to partnerships, to finding the builders, to getting shovels in the ground, to getting the project constructed, um, that we just don't know what's going to happen. So if we go back to, you know, what does this all mean from an NDP and thinking about the long-term consequence of it? We are excited to see the money go in. There's optimism. We're thankful that we have the partnerships that we do with the city of Kelowna. We just want to make sure it's not a lot of money going to build 100 homes through a BC housing project. We want to make sure that it's going to build as many homes as possible. And maybe by spending that money to revisit that DCC densification policy, maybe that could have more of an impact in those five core areas in the official community plan.
0: How does the, the UDI, the Urban Development Institute, work with, with you?
1: So UDI UDI is a fantastic organization. I like to humbly joke we're like the farm team. So a home builder decides, goes from single family to building multi family to building multi-story to becoming a land developer. And as they work their way up the rings, they're going to get into more UDI issues than they are going to get into CHBA issues. Uh, we work... Very well with UDI, we have a relationship where we're trying to share notes, where we make sure our committees are not necessarily overlapping, and we're getting the best out of our members in whatever way we can, because we have like a 70% membership overlap rate, something like that. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's... We're collaborative partners when it comes to things like getting into the weeds of cost conversations. I delegate to UDI; they have some very smart people on their committees. Uh, and then when it's time to be the loudmouth brand at different levels of government, that's where I jump in and let them go with diplomacy.
0: <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting though, because I, I I think it's it's great to have that shared knowledge, especially between with the seventy percent overlap. I mean, it sounds like it would only behoove both of your organizations to kind of work very closely together
1: totally what's good for UDI is good for us for the most part so it's if there's ever areas where we can collaborate we do we've published papers together in the past published letters in the past um, and that will that will continue to go on Um, but what's good for their members is good for our members and that's really what we keep in mind at the end of the day there's enough room in the sandbox for everyone to play
0: there really is um last few questions um Talking about the labor shortage, and I want to get back to that conversation. Is there um, is there any great ways to find labor? Like, because obviously you're sharing information and everything else. And and for people listening to the program, they're going, yeah. Is there any tips and tricks that that I can employ to attract more labor into the Okanagan? Have you seen like is is indeed the best way to go? Is it like is there any new innovative hiring that you've seen? to attract talent to the Okanagan.
1: So, indeed is a great place as far as hiring is concerned. I think with the steps the government, the provincial government is taking to ensure that wages are publicly listed, I think that's going to be very helpful in getting the right types of workers. What people need to really be looking at is all of the government granting and funding programs for attracting overseas work so from lake country and north literally all the way to the border of the yukon there is a northern immigration workers program where if a red seal certified tradesperson is working with you for they'll bring the worker in from whatever country for a year they'll help subsidize part of the wage is my understanding and after one year of work it's a fast track to citizenship this is a fantastic program for anyone in lake country and beyond but why isn't it available in Kelowna? That's something that should probably be available province-wide and something that I would be pushing for and advocating for as far as our local community is concerned. Uh, Otherwise, I think you're looking at different upskill training grants to get people more specialized so that you're turning your generalists into trades. I think that's Mm -hmm. one other option. And I think really the biggest thing that we need to look at is job retraining for anybody who's sat at a desk in one of those STEM jobs for the last 10 years. Maybe they're experiencing a Silicon Valley bank layoff or something like that. Uh, But we should be looking at free retraining. If you want to become a carpenter, if you want to become a plumber and electrician, there's over 11, sorry, 11, 1 million openings projected over the next decade, lots of money to be made. So if we could support free training for those that actually complete their apprenticeships because our completion rate is so low because they chase the money. But if you could say, we're gonna give it to you as a loan. And then at the end of the program, once you complete all four years, we'll turn it into a grant because you completed. I think that'd be a fantastic step the provincial government could take in order to incentivize work. Um, But we're going to need to find more workers from beyond the borders of our region and our community. And we're going to need to find ways to get houses to keep them here.
0: So the interesting thing is I had a chat with my neighbor uh, yesterday, last night, actually. And I said, man, have you lost weight? And he says, yeah, I, I have. And he was a, a district manager of an insurance firm. And he said, uh, you know, they gave me a, a payout and I took it. And then uh, now I'm, I'm sanding and, and doing body work and, and uh, working in a car restoration. Um, obviously not trades, but... but it is a sort of trade. And he says, you know, I'm moving around a lot. I'm enjoying my life more. I don't have the cortisol working through my system all the time and I'm not stressed out and I'm working with my hands again. And he says, I so appreciate doing that instead of sitting at a desk. So further to your point about retraining, that's an interesting way to do that, which is because I know some, some lawyers and, and accountants have said enough is enough. And they went to welding or they did some some sort of trade to get back into working with their hands again. So that's a very interesting innovative way to look at that.
1: I think it's one of the biggest opportunities that we have. I personally, I'm a great desk person. I love my desk and I'm never leaving my chair. So, but my wife is a tradesperson and she is really good with her hands. She's spatially intelligent. She can envision what something should look like and can bring a project from ideation all the way to completion. I think we, anybody who has that skill set that is currently working at a desk and is frustrated should be given a fresh opportunity to be able to consider, maybe I should try working with my hands. Maybe I am more tactically inclined and maybe I chasing the dollar instead of chasing what gets you out of bed every morning, is the self-assessment that the individual needs to do. But if the government can put support systems and tools in place to ease that transition while also fueling what the next wave of our economy is going to look like, that's, that's exactly where a government should be. That's its sole purpose. Uh, get ahead of the economy and make sure we're supporting our people so that they can contribute. If, if they did that, the, the measure would be multiples over in terms of benefit
0: so exciting it's an exciting time
1: isn't it it is one of the most exciting times to live in this community it's the growth the speed the everything that's coming online and we see it in our membership you see it in the cranes in the sky you see it in the the condos that are coming up you see it in the custom homes that are built on the lake you see it in the cool projects that are getting built in rutland man uh it's it's never been a better time to be in the okanagan for most people now we also need to figure out how we make it the best time in the okanagan for all people (laughs)
0: Well said. Listen, this has been a hoot. We have to get you on the program again. And uh, thanks for taking the time. I know it took us a a while, but we got here. And uh, so appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And being vocal, my friend. I, I so love the fact that you use this platform You have a channel and uh, continue to share, my friend.
1: I appreciate the words. I didn't think, uh, I'm not going to let you kick me out of here. I'm just going to like put a sleeping bag under the table because, you know, that's how housing is now. So I appreciate you having me on and anybody looking for me on LinkedIn, Daniel Weiner, W-I-N-E-R.